I'm Sarah Hooper. And I'm Arika Smith. You're listening to Contraindicated, a podcast dedicated to rethinking the systems that perpetuate health injustice. This program has been made possible by the UCSF UC Hastings Consortium on Law, Science, and Health Policy. This episode, with the help of Liz Tobin Tyler and Rakaya Yearby, we unpack the idea of health justice and the social determinants of health. Liz Tobin Tyler is Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at the Albert Medical School and Assistant Professor of Health Services Policy and Practice at Brown University School of Public Health. Her research focuses on the role of law and policy in the social determinants of health, community-based and health system interventions that address health disparities, and interprofessional medical legal education. Rukaya Yerby is a professor of law and member of the Center for Health Law Studies at the St. Louis University School of Law. She's also the co-founder and executive director of the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity. Her research focuses on racial disparities in healthcare, the political economy of healthcare, and social justice in medical research. Liz and Joel Teitelbaum are writing a book slated to be released next year titled Essentials of Health Justice, Law, Policy, and Structural Change. Makaya and Liz, thank you for joining us on the program. Glad to be here. Yes, thank you for having us. On this episode, you're going to help us understand what is meant when we talk about social determinants of health. In order to do this, I'm wondering if you could start us off by sharing a story or an experience where these social determinants are really obviously at play. Yes, I want you to imagine a single mother named Claudia. Um, Claudia works a low-wage job as a grocery store cashier. She lives in a racially segregated low-income neighborhood and is barely able to make ends meet each month. She can't afford good housing, and so she and her three kids live in a kind of dilapidated triple-decker in a neighborhood that has significant blight due to underinvestment. Her four-year-old son, Derek, begins showing signs of ADHD. He's also having some cognitive issues and gastrointestinal problems. As it turns out, Derek has been lead poisoned from touching surfaces in their home that contain lead dust, which basically comes off of lead-painted surfaces when you open and close windows. Young children are especially prone to lead poisoning because their brains are still developing and because they easily ingest lead chips or lead dust, as I mentioned, through hand-to-mouth activity. So this event changes Derek's and Claudia's lives forever. Derek needs special education services. He needs regular and frequent health care. He's very challenging for Claudia to manage due to his behavioral issues that come from lead toxicity. And remember, Derek's not Claudia's only child. So Claudia needs to advocate for Derek to get him what he needs in school, but they live in a poor district where there are very few services and supports. And in fact, if she takes off time from work from her low-wage job, she risks being fired because she doesn't have paid leave or paid sick time. Taking Derek to the doctors, which she has to do more frequently because of the health issues related to his lead poisoning, is also similarly challenging because it means taking off time from work. So Derek's pediatrician pleads with Claudia to move to a new apartment that's safer, but she looks around and there's nothing that she can afford that is any better than what she's in now. After learning that Derek's been lead poisoned, Claudia's landlord 
threatens her with eviction because he doesn't want to deal with having to be forced to remediate the lead hazards, which are extremely expensive. So Claudia is pretty desperate. The stress of all of this leads Claudia to start smoking again. She's actually quit, but as we know, stress can can induce people to, to smoke. She also starts to stress eat. So her doctor warns her that she, he's concerned that she's hypertensive, um, that she's also at risk for diabetes. And she lives in a state that has an expanded Medicaid. And so she falls into sort of the coverage gap because she can't access affordable coverage through Obamacare. And so she is uninsured and doesn't have the means to actually pay for her hypertension medication. So this is actually not an uncommon story. When you think about particularly low-wage earners, often single mothers, often women of color, living in low-income neighborhoods, what they have access to for their children, including safe housing, including uh, good educational opportunities, including access to healthcare, all the things that are critical to a person's health. There are many examples in this story of that. So when we think about the social determinants of health, we're talking about things like, do people have access to affordable housing that's safe and isn't actually going to harm their health as it did in this case? What about employment precarity, right? Does the person have enough, or do they earn enough money each month that they can actually meet their basic needs for themselves and for their children? But do they also have protections that keep them from being terminated if they have a health crisis like we've talked about? There's also the child's unmet educational needs. So children that live in low-income neighborhoods with you know, poor educational opportunities and poor schools often don't have their educational needs met. Uh, and for a child like Derek who has suffered lead poisoning, that can be you know, a lifelong issue for him because it's going to reduce his opportunities. And then finally, thinking about issues around basic access to health insurance, we still do not have universal coverage in this country. And then finally, social support. We think about people that are really dealing with all of these kinds of struggles uh, without a lot of social support, and that actually impacts their health as well. So, you know, in this country, we often think about health as being the product of individual choices and behaviors. And I think what your story elicits so nicely is that it's health is really embedded in these larger kind of systems and larger environments. And so can you kind of help us name a little bit more what those structures are and what the larger systemic issues are that that are in play here? So when we think about individuals, we often forget that there are systems, structures that limit their power, their ability to be healthy. And so when we think about those social determinants of health, we need to think about the root causes of inequity and inequality. We are focusing on racism, but understand that it also plays a big role in terms of poverty, in terms of gender identity, sex, LGBTQIA status. But focusing on one group, I think, is helpful. So when we think about some of the inequities, they're really tied to systemic racism, which refers to a complex array of social structures, interpersonal interactions, and beliefs used to create a hierarchy or a system that categorizes people into superior and inferior groups. And in the United States, 
we see that whites are considered superior, whereas Asians, Black, Indigenous, and uh, Latino Americans have been deemed inferior races or ethnic groups. And so this plays out in the ways that our laws and our systems are set up. So when we think about the educational system, it's set up through law um, to be funded through property taxes. And so that tends to mean that places that have been redlined or undervalued, which are traditionally Black and Latino neighborhoods, um, don't have a high property tax base. And so there's not enough money to go into their schools. That means there's not enough support for their schools, which limits their educational opportunities. So then when they go to college, if they go to college, they're not prepared And then when they graduate, they're not able to get a good job. We also see this in the ways that employment is structured. Oftentimes, people get their jobs through recommendations and referrals um, instead of just based on their actual ability. Again, this feeds back to residential segregation because we tend to refer people we know. Well, where do we get to know people at work or in our neighborhoods. And so if you limit those opportunities for Blacks, Latinos, Native Americans, Asians to be in the same neighborhoods as white Americans, um, then you limit their opportunities to get high paying jobs. We also see this in cultural racism and the presence of societal beliefs and customs that promote the concept that white culture is superior. And so we see this often discussed in terms of individual responsibility for health instead of thinking and including um, the ways that family, the ways that other things play a role in people's ability to be healthy. And of course, it's an interpersonal racism, but we tend to understand that, right? That's the individual interactions that we see, people saying uh, bad things or intentional racism. Um, That's easier, but all of these are linked really to people's opportunity to get the best education they can, to get the best jobs they can, to live in housing that is healthy. And so we focus on racism, but remember the story that Liz said included a woman of color. And so there are ways also that gender, gender identity interact with race. It's not clear that perhaps you're living in a place with lead poisoning. Is it because you're Black? Um, is it because you're a woman, because you have a job that is low paying? Which one? And so there are often multiple identities that limit people's ability to get housing that is healthy and jobs that pay a living wage. And I can I just add, you know, I think what Rakaya is talking about is so important, which is the structural foundation for people's opportunity. And I just want to point out with this particular story that all of these things that we're citing as social determinants of health or even structural determinants of health are policy choices, right? We decide what our laws are going to be and what our policies are going to be and how we're going to interpret our laws. And so I would just say, you know, when we think about the insufficient income that low-wage workers have access to, and usually not only, but certainly many uh, women of color work in those low-wage jobs, 
we've made decisions, right, about how we're going to structure policy around that. We've made decisions about whether we're going to offer paid leave and job protections to people, particularly in those low-wage jobs. We've made decisions about how we're going to give people health insurance, and we do it through employment, which means that many people are shut out or certain um, places do not offer Medicaid coverage that's going to cover the population that needs it. We've made decisions about whether or not we're going we're gonna to fund and support affordable housing, whether we're going to enforce housing laws that protect children from lead poisoning. That's a decision that has been made in terms of our priorities and where we put our investments. There are also power dynamics between landlords and tenants, and we support the power dynamics that exist, which mean that it's much more difficult for a tenant to fight an eviction than it is for a landlord to actually evict a tenant. And we know in particular that Black women are much more likely to be evicted um, than any population in the country. And we've seen that through the COVID data actually uh, more recently with who is being evicted during the COVID crisis. We see inadequate educational opportunities, as Rakaya said. And then we also see that low-income parents don't have the same opportunities to advocate for their children because of all of the things that I've just described, which means that you know, when they try to go and advocate for the educational services that their children deserve by law, it's very difficult for them to do that because they risk losing their job or they risk other things. And so I think when you look at all of these different social determinants of health, what you see upstream from those are very clearly law and policy decisions and structural inequities that have really been baked into the system. And I would say that it's also the ways that we give power. Uh, so building off of what Liz said, right, if we are trying to give power to people to address these problems, it shouldn't simply be making them go to court because they don't have the time or the money. It's a very different system, as Liz said, if you put the burden on the person who has the power and the money, which is traditionally either the landlord or the school, to show that they're actually providing equal, effective, and equitable housing and education to people. It should not be up to an individual's responsibility who has very limited power compared to an employer or school system or a landlord that owns a lot of houses to rectify the problem. And so when we think about the ways that law impacts it, it's not only about the gaps, it's also about the burden that law puts on those who are already overburdened to prove and to show that they have been harmed. And usually law never fully redresses that harm, right? And so even if you get evicted and you prove that you were falsely evicted, it's too late, even if you're discriminated against in terms of employment and you're fired, usually you don't get your job back and you don't get money to address the lost health care. And so there are multiple ways that law plays a part, but I think we really need to think differently about the structure of rights and benefits and burdens that our law puts on people who are already overburdened. It would be great if we could do that exercise right now. So we're, we're looking at Claudia and Derek, and you're 
you know, we're setting up a, it is a very dire circumstance. Claudia is at risk of losing her job if she does the very basic thing she needs to do to care for her child. A job that doesn't adequately support her to get safe housing. Safe housing, you know, she shouldn't be in unsafe housing because it's not legal to have a home that has lead paint. I mean, I assume that that's the case, but it's not being enforced. And instead of it being enforced and there being some kind of system to protect her, she might be evicted because of liability. I mean, we're almost looking like we're going in a direction of Claudia's experiencing health and stress and distress. Her child is needing care that he's not getting and she she's not in a position to advocate adequately for. They may lose their housing. I mean, this is going in a, a direction that is... It's just really, well, horrible. And I would love to hear, how could this be different? Where could the law and the policy intervene? Where in some states, as you sort of hinted at, Liz, you know, there are different services or different laws in place to support people. I would love to paint a different picture of how this doesn't have to be an outcome where, you know, potentially this family is ending up on the streets or just in a cycle of being ill, you know, and passing these very difficult circumstances down from one generation to the next and then to the next. So I think there's sort of a two-part answer to that. And one is sort of existing laws and how do we ensure that people actually are able to exercise their legal rights that exist today. And then there's the question of where are the gaps in existing laws and policies? And and we have many of those as well uh, in terms of addressing some of the issues that Claudia and Derek are struggling with. So first, I would say from a health perspective that when a child is lead poisoned, it has enormous consequences, but with the right supports, both in terms of their health and other types of social supports, they can do very well. Right. So this doesn't have to mean that that Derek's going to have, you know, an unfulfilled life. And so the question would be, what can we connect Derek to and how can we support Claudia to actually help him access what could actually help him? So that may be educational supports through appropriate special education services that can address some of the learning gaps that he might have. So, you know, in the case, if we had what we wanted here, there would be a legal advocate who would help Claudia in advocating for what would be appropriate at his school district through a special education, what's called an individualized education plan that supports his needs. So that would be one thing that in the the world of providing the services that he needs, he would get, um, as well as potentially other community-based services. Existing, other existing laws, there is absolutely no reason that there should be lead paint in that apartment to begin with. So if, if we're proactively inspecting and targeting, I would suggest, neighborhoods where we know that there's a lot of lead paint in old homes and ensuring that landlords actually meet their obligations to make sure that those are lead safe, then we wouldn't have this in the first place. We certainly should be able to protect Derek and Claudia from being evicted because, in fact, it's what's considered retaliatory eviction to evict a family based on them trying to exercise their legal rights, which is having an inspection of the home and determining that the landlord is in violation of those rights. So again, with legal advocacy, we should be able to protect Claudia from that eviction. And and you're hearing, you're probably hearing a theme here, which is where's the legal advocacy, right? So if we actually had more what we consider access to justice, meaning that there are legal advocates available to people like Claudia, um, we would see a lot 
more enforcement of existing laws that should be protective. But there are also big gaps here, right? We Claudia doesn't have a right to paid leave. She doesn't have the ability to take time off without her employer legally firing her, right? If she doesn't come to work because she needs to be taking care of her children. That's a huge gap in our laws. And so that I would argue is something that has that it needs to change in terms of our policy. The whole question of affordable housing is another one where people don't have a legal right to affordable housing. They are in, an, in a housing market trying to find housing. Um, and that's certainly a larger policy issue. I think there's a lot more attention than there used to be to the connection between affordable housing and safe housing to health than there used to be, which is a good thing. But we still have a long way to go in terms of ensuring that people can actually access safe, affordable housing. So I think there's both ways that advocates can really support people living, you know, dealing with the burdens that we're all talking about here in terms of enforcement of legal rights. But there's also great, you know, needed change in terms of the laws um, and policies that we currently have. And certainly, and Rakaya can speak to this as well, you know, even when we have potentially good laws, there's a lot of discrimination in our systems in terms of who gets what and whether it's employment or whether it's enforcement of the housing code. We know that that doesn't happen in certain neighborhoods in the way that it does in other neighborhoods. And so discrimination certainly plays a big role in that as well. Um, I don't know, Rakai, if you want to add to, to that part of the discussion. Yes, I think what we need is a shift. And so one of the things I have been focusing on with others, including Professor Lindsay Wiley, Emily Benfer, Seema Moapatra, is trying to redefine what health justice looks like. And one of the key components of that is truth and reconciliation, actually acknowledging the problems, uh, whether that means, as Liz said, data collection, being honest and truthful about the fact that there are lots of lead paint violations, particularly in housing that is rented to people who have children and that impact, um, but also giving those who are most impacted a voice to talk about those problems. And that really feeds into the second component, which is community empowerment. We need to shift this from those in power being the landlords or policymakers who are not impacted and really give the power to the people most impacted. Um, so not just talking about going and inspecting, but what can be done, really giving money to the people in the homes uh, to be able to address some of this in partnership with the landlords, but to really think about how they need to play a role in defining these systems. Oftentimes when people craft paid sick leave or health insurance policies. They don't actually think about the employees who are impacted. And so having paid sick time uh, that is just sort of take the whole day off, you might not need the whole day. You might need two hours every day for a week because you need to address something with the family member. So really empowering those most impacted to make the changes. And then that goes to the third thing I wanted to highlight is structural change that we need to think about how the policies can support people's health and not just try to focus on efficiency as if that is a separate goal from improving people's health. 
And so I say those three things, along with all of the suggestions that Liz said, are important for shifting the discussion and how we support people to be uh, the healthy, the healthiest they can be. Thank you for unpacking that. And I, I wanted to just pick up on the term that you used, health justice. And so I, I was hoping, you know, the literature and the discussion around this has really changed over the last 10 years. We've gone from talking about health disparities to health equity to health justice, you know, and there's all these buzzwords. I'm wondering if you could just unpack that a little bit more for us. And, you know, what is the difference between health injustice and health inequity and health disparities? Um, so I think, you know, I think part of what we're trying to to unpack about using the term justice as opposed to equity is that I hope from the story that we've told and some of the discussion that we've had, it's clear that that health inequities themselves are unjust. You know, when we think about someone like Claudia and her son, Derek, there's a level of injustice in terms of what happens to people that's not about, as you talked about earlier, sort of personal decision-making or personal responsibility for health. And so I think what health justice really demands is that we, and I'll pick up on what Rakaya said, we really need to think about power dynamics and sort of how do we begin to share power with all kinds of people so that they can ultimately be you know, as healthy as possible. So that may have to do with you know, whether they're racial ethnic minorities or LGBTQ people women, people with disabilities, older people that don't often have access to power and decision-making. And so what does that mean? That means actually constructing laws and policies that are advancing equitable access to health and healthcare. So what does it mean to access health? It means that all of those things that are so difficult for Claudia and her son to navigate are no longer the burdens that they're dealing with, and they have an opportunity to be healthy. They have an opportunity not to be lead poisoned. They have an opportunity not to be weighed down by such enormous stress that it leads to lifelong chronic disease. And so I think it's it, and it's really about sort of tearing down um, kind of the privilege that some people have access and opportunity to be healthy, and some people don't. And, and that's about recognizing you know, all people's dignity and that health is a value for everyone, regardless of, you know, where they come from. And, and, and part of that is really thinking about systems of power and who gets what opportunities and who doesn't. And then I will add, it also pulls in the other justice movements that are really grounded in community, community-led change, and that includes the environmental justice, reproductive justice movements, even the civil rights movement. So that, to me, is what is a little different uh, than equity, that it is really centered in valuing and understanding community voices and power and their right to decide uh, what they need to be healthy. Are there notable community health justice groups, projects that you would like to share with the audience? Yeah, I can. I mean, I'll certainly mention my own work and the work of many, many, many others with medical legal partnerships, which are uh, partnerships that bring together sort of healthcare and public health communities with lawyers and legal advocates to really address at the individual level stories like Claudia's, um, but also to really think about within particular communities, 
this question of, you know, who has access to what and how do we empower people in local communities to access the things that they need um, and doing that through a sort of partnership, which includes professionals, but also really empowers um, members of the community to talk about their needs and what what they'd like to see happen. So I think that's one example. I, I you know, I would pick up on what Rakaya said about other types of locally based often um, efforts like the environmental justice movement, which has been very powerful in actually starting at a a grassroots level of asking people what they want, what they need, what they don't want in their communities when sometimes there are environmental dangers. And I'll just give one example from my local community that just happened, which is there was a proposal by the city of Providence to put in an asphalt plant across the street from one of the local community health centers here that serves the South Providence area, which is predominantly immigrant and, and communities of color. And the healthcare community, along with lots of environmental justice advocates who are from the community, came together to fight that. And they actually announced yesterday that they had successfully gotten the city council not to allow the asphalt plant to be built there. So I think, you know, I think we're seeing really nice examples locally of people coming together around health and justice and in that case, you know, sort of environmental justice issues. And I will add two examples. Uh, So one is the Praxis Project, uh, which is in the Oakland, California, and it focuses on uh, supporting and building capacity for social change. Um, And so a lot of their work has been built around community-led power for change and supporting the development of community leaders to address health justice and really push some of these issues around a sugary drink tax, that if we're going to tax sugary drinks, that that investment goes into the communities that are most impacted instead of having those dollars taken out. Um, And so I would say that their work around a number of issues serves as an example of how you can have a community-led movement for social change, really addressing issues around health. And then I will just highlight some of the work that I'm doing at the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity, along with some of the co-founders I'm executive director of. One of our co-founders, Dr. Amber Johnson, is working on a project around truth and reconciliation uh, within hospitals for sickle cell patients of really beginning to understand the ways that hospitals and institutions have not provided care and access to appropriate care for sickle cell patients and how then we can move forward with that community deciding what they need and building that institutional support for them. So a lot of the interventions that we have been talking about that are really critical lie outside of healthcare systems but we spend, you know, 20% of our GDP in the United States on health care. And so I want to sort of ask a provocative question. Are we spending our money in the wrong place? Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, I think this is something I've, I've thought a lot about because uh, I work with many, many, many healthcare providers and I work in a medical school. And so you know, we are essentially spending money downstream for many, many of the the root causes of poor health that we could be investing in upstream. And so the challenge is that we 
become so accustomed to doing things the way that we do them, which is investing more and more and more in the healthcare system. We've created a sort of bohemoth system of, of healthcare that it's very difficult to, to sort of then move money out of that and invest upstream because it's very hard to get policymakers to do that. But I think the critical question, Sarah, that you're asking is how do we begin to invest preventatively in prevention so that we're not having to spend money on people, for example, having to be taken care of for lead poisoning or for going to the hospital for an asthma exacerbation that could be dealt with if we had ensured that their housing uh, was safe and wasn't creating asthma triggers that's going to make them sick, right? And so uh, I think there's a lot of discussion about that. And the question is, how much structural change are we willing to take? And I think back to Rakaya's point, to really shift towards upstream structural change, we have to make the decision that we want to do that. Uh, And those are hard decisions to make because it means really changing the status quo that we're all very used to. And I guess just a follow up to that. I mean, as you know, there are some sort of proposals and some activities happening around having healthcare payers pay for social interventions and social determinants of health. And in some ways, that's really promising. That's really exciting. And in other ways, I'm wondering, does that further embed our current structures and especially power structures and medicalizing problems that are health problems, but are fundamentally social and environmental problems? And how should we think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think, and this is you know a question that I get a lot because I do work with medical students and other healthcare providers, and we're spending more and more time in medical education um, and residency programs and trying to convince healthcare providers that it is their responsibility to be concerned with these upstream social determinants of health. I think that's a good thing from the perspective of engaging the medical community to think about their role. Um, and understand health in that broader context. But I like you, Sarah, I kind of I worry that that it also medicalizes the problem, which could be addressed by real investment and real policy change, you know, upstream that would mean that we wouldn't have all of the social problems sort of coming down the stream into the medical care system in the first place. So I think it's, you know, it's it is positive in some sense, but it also does in a way take away from the discussion of what really needs to happen upstream in terms of public health interventions and and other kinds of social interventions that would alleviate the problem to begin with. Yes. And I will add to that to say that we need to shift our thinking. Hospitals, the healthcare system, the medical system is an example of all of these problems. They employ people, They employ people, often not providing them with health insurance. And so when we think about some of the outside contractors who clean the hospital, who serve food there, who are community health workers, they often do not pay them a living wage, provide them with health insurance. And so if they change the ways that they actually employ people, that would be great. If they change the ways they operated in neighborhoods, often you see some of these big hospitals not investing in their communities until they want to buy up the property and then invest it. And so wouldn't it be great if places like Johns Hopkins that was in a traditionally poor neighborhood actually invested in it and helped the people in those neighborhoods 
improve the housing. So get rid of the lead all of the way. Actually invest in the schools. That is what we need. Not to say that this is something that physicians should take on, but understanding that because the healthcare system is big business, they can change their business practices and how they interact with communities, empower these communities to actually give back instead of pulling out money. Hospitals usually take up a lot of space. Why not provide opportunities for small businesses within the hospitals? And so that can mean childcare, because when people are in the hospital, guess what? You can't take their children there. Provide some childcare opportunities that you also open up to people in the neighborhoods. Offer opportunity for some of those people in the neighborhoods who maybe want to cut hair or do other things to actually have space in the hospital system, right? And so I think we need to, again, think about it differently to say it's tied to health and think about the ways that healthcare institutions, including insurance companies, but I'm just focusing on hospitals, actually interact with these communities and do it in an equitable way. This discussion has been extremely informative and um, I cannot overstate how important it is to think about this, change how we think, change how the system works, all of the things that you're suggesting we do, and then some. I'm sure I didn't capture all of it just then, but it's a big project, and it's but it's a necessary one. So I wanted to know if you had any last thoughts you wanted to share with the listeners before we close this episode. We just want to thank you for having us today to begin to talk about ways that we can address uh, these issues and to give a voice to community and to really highlight that if we work together, that we can make serious change because it impacts us all. Rakaya, Liz, thank you for speaking with us on Contraindicated. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. For resources and info related to this episode, and to listen to other episodes, please visit uchastings.edu forward slash health injustice.